Well, you guys know the drill, and if you're new here, this is the drill. Grab your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah 11. We don't turn to Nehemiah 11 every week, uh, but that's where we're at this week. A couple more weeks left of our uh, Ezra Nehemiah series, which we started in January, I, th I think. I should probably know that. Nehemiah 11, if you're on a device, you can go to the ESV version uh, if you want to stay tracking with us. Nehemiah 11. Well, the one thing that you didn't want to do if you knew my family growing up was join us on a Friday night for Monopoly. <laughs> I mean, for my older sister and my dad, um, it was like preparing for war for them. Um, my mom would go to bed early, um, dressed in all black like she was already preparing to mourn. It, Monopoly in our house, it was, it was treated like real life. It was like those properties that everybody bought were real, right? They, they felt that way. You wouldn't have thought, um, or you would have thought that like the money was real, that everybody was playing for it. My dad's dream, and he would say this every, every Friday night that we would do Monopoly, his dream was to someday play Monopoly with real money with the family, with the kids, right? I can't even contemplate the amount of bloodshed that would have caused had that ever happened. Um, Monopoly was not a great community event at the Martin House. If you were an outsider, you would have felt like you were in danger, you know, the whole night. Um, but whether they realized it or not, and I'm laying this all at the foot of my dad and my sister, we're all playing, um, they were creating a culture of community in those moments in our house. And in a lot of ways, this can be like the church. This can be like the church in that um, when we are not intentional about creating a community that is characteristic of Christ, it's not just going to look like nothing. It's going to look like something. So the way that we worship together, the way that we interact together, the way that we sing together, the way that we structure the church together, in all of that, we're creating a culture of community. It's not something that's just neutral, right? There is no neutral church where you just walk in and it's like drinking like a, a flavorless glass of water. Like that just doesn't exist. With everything we're doing, we're saying something about who we are. We're saying something about what we believe to be true about God and how we are deciding to live it out. So even unintentionality, in a sense, is intentional. We're being intentional about being unintentional, right? The question for us is this morning, are we intentional about what we are creating in that we want Substance Church to be a community that is developing a culture of Jesus Christ and the heart of Jesus Christ, which then forms everything that we do. You can desire a community that is characteristic of Jesus and his heart. And in fact, if, if you go to any church and you say, hey, do you guys all want a community that's characteristic of Jesus? Like really, you know, with the exception of like the church of Satan, like nobody's gonna say no to that. They're all gonna say, of course, fool. We want a community that's characteristic of Jesus Christ, but it's not just going to magically appear. It doesn't just happen. Like everything in life, you have to lay 
the groundwork for it. Now, before we dive into Nehemiah 11, I want to just go back a little bit. I want to trace our steps. Pastor Scott, man, he does such a good job of that. He did a great job of that, kind of letting everybody know how far we've come um, so far in the series. I, as, as I keep getting deeper into the series, I, I was telling him, I'm like, I'm super shy about like retreading all the steps every week because it feels a little laborious. He did a great job of that. But let me just kind of take a... T- take a uh, take a little bit of what he did and go back a little bit so that we can get to the place that we are now. Because when we began in Ezra all these weeks ago, we saw that the Israelites were in captivity, in Babylonian captivity. Ezra brings them to Jerusalem. They start this project in rebuilding the temple because God had opened the doors, had given them favor and blessing with the king at that time. So they rebuild the temple. Then Nehemiah comes into the picture. He brings a second Uh, just exodus of captives from Persia, from Babylon. They end up rebuilding the walls and the gates. And in the last few weeks, we've seen that they're bringing back the the temple worship. They're bringing back the festivals that, that God had commanded and instituted for them so many years ago as his people. And then we see that they have these times of, of celebration and confession uh, before the Lord. And then last week, Again, Scott did such a great job at showing us how they reestablished their covenant before God. And in a lot of ways, if we can just focus out a little bit, and I know that was the briefest recap I've ever done in the history of recaps, but in a lot of ways, this, this, this exodus um, of these cap- captives going from Babylon, from Persia, back to Jerusalem, and then seeing everything that they've been going through as God's been bringing them back as his people, this kind of traces our story. In some ways, this mimics our story of salvation as the Lord, he rebuilds us. The Lord restores us. The Lord renews us as a church, and he just does it over and over and over again. So today we're going to look at this. We're going to look at the components. I hate that word, but I couldn't come up with anything better. The components necessary for intentional community. Intentional community as laid out in Nehemiah chapter uh, 11. There's a lot of genealogy in here, so we're really only going to hit the first three verses. But this is what it says. It says, now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. And the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of 10 to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of 10 remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem, but in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his property in their towns, Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And if you go all the way uh, till the end of uh, chapter 11, verse 36, you'll see how it's all laid out, how they're, uh, they're, they're providing a record for us of all of the people that were living both inside and outside the city walls, as well as the ones that they commissioned to bring in to fill up the city. So what's happening, though, here for our purposes is... Jerusalem was in a place where all this rebuilding, all this restoring, all this renewal is is coming back into play. The gates are, are rebuilt. Everything is becoming strong again, but it had been lying in ruins for so long that people weren't really eager to go back to Jerusalem to establish themselves and to live there, 
right? And to, and to establish some sense of community for it. And so what the leaders did was say, hey, we, we need you guys to come in and repopulate this city because this is the center. This is where the presence of the Lord exists and shines out of for our people. It, it's, it's also a, the place of, of strength it's also the place where we are most vulnerable. And if there's nobody in the city, we make ourselves more vulnerable to attack. So we need to populate this city. So what we're going to do now is we're just going to look at a few things that show us, based on Nehemiah here, some of the things that are necessary for what I'm calling intentional community. Not just community, not just filling a space and going, you know, whatever happens, happens. But in intentional community that says, hey, we're doing these things because of these things. And the first thing that we see is that we see that the leaders of the Israelites had eyes for God's vision. So the first thing that we look at in terms of what's necessary for intentional community is having eyes for God's vision. At the end of chapter 10, if you put your eyes at the very end of 39, it says, we will not neglect the house of our God. We read how the people reestablished all the way through chapter 10 their covenant with the Lord and they promised here at the very end they said we will not neglect the house of God. And so what we see here is that this is the culmination of the Israelites journey so far which was getting back into right standing with God. Getting their worship reordered. That's what we've been looking at. Becoming a people who trusted and obeyed God again. The people finally had a vision for God's call on their lives. And their next step here was in making sure that Jerusalem, which was the center of their worship, was repopulated enough so that it became a strong defense. So that it became a visible presence again for the people who were both inside Israel and outside of Israel. In other words, Jerusalem is not really Jerusalem if it doesn't have God's people living, working, and worshiping in it. That's why they cast lots, it says, and they chose 10%, which is pretty significant, 10% of the population to uproot and to relocate. It was important to become reestablished as God's community in God's, it says here, holy city. And the city could be called holy again. That was, a, that was an apt description. That was a new way to frame and to phrase what had happened to Jerusalem. Because everything and everyone had been consecrated. Everyone and everything had been purified once again. This just wasn't the ruined city of Jerusalem anymore. But it had been reestablished as the what? The holy city of Jerusalem. It could be called holy again. This was God's vision for his holy city. And by the way, this is God's vision for our towns. This is God's vision for our cities, which is why one of the visions for substance was to be in the heart of downtown Ashland. Downtown is the heartbeat, you could say, of our city. It's where people gather and we see this, we see this more and more now, don't we? As downtown Ashland just continues to be revitalized, it's just shocking whenever we're down here on a weekend or a weeknight, the parking lot is just packed now. Our parking lot is packed. I'm kidding. It's everybody's parking lot. But it's full. 
People going to South Street Grill, people going to Uniontown, people walking the streets, people hanging out at Foundation Plaza when the weather's nice. I mean, this city now has become, in a sense, repopulated, right? And this is where people go when they want to get to the center of the town. This is the center point of where people gather together. So when people come downtown, we want them to see a house of worship, or in our case, a warehouse of worship at the center of town. Now listen, that does not mean there shouldn't be churches on the outskirts of town. There, there should be, right? There was 10% of the population was being moved into Jerusalem. It was important that all the regions, all the areas were covered. But it does mean for us and for the Israelites here that downtown or Jerusalem in their case represents a focal point for people. And so for us, we want the presence of the Lord here to be known. So think of it like this. Every Sunday, we enter into the nerve center of Ashland to declare this. God is here. God is here. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion or Jerusalem, in the far north, the city of the great king, within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. Psalm 48, that's how important towns and cities and city centers and downtowns and the focal point of where people gather and commerce is established. That's how important these places are to God. Ronnie, are you comparing God's holy mountain to Ashland? Kind of, in a sense, only because we want Ashland to be a city of God where God is declared king, where God is praised, and where Christ is exalted by us, God's people. That's what the Israelites were doing as they filled up the city of Jerusalem. It was that important, just like it's that important in Ashland. God has a vision for Ashland. You ever think about it like that? God has a vision for Ashland. The town is not too small to escape his eyes. Do you know that he looks at this town with love in his heart? And what that does for us is it, it means that our prayers, that substance can be a part of that vision for spreading his kingdom. There's other churches that are, that are they're part of spreading that vision too. So our vision is God's vision for Ashland to see men and women and children being saved by Christ and growing in community in Christ. So the first component we see here for intentional community is having eyes for God's vision. This is what the leaders of Israel had. This is what we want to have as people who are establishing worship in the heart of our city. The second thing is they made sacrifices. They made sacrifices as God's people because creating intentional community, it just requires sacrifice. I'm sure there were people who had just gotten settled into their homes, right? Finally finished painting their kids' bedrooms, got the garage organized when they got that call to relocate to Jerusalem. And they committed to moving because they understood the necessity and the value of establishing community in the heart of the city. 
Remember how we just read in chapter 10, part of their covenant was to not neglect the house of God. And part of not neglecting it was making sure that they were in proximity of it so that they could provide strength and support to the work that the Lord was doing to rebuild, restore, and renew. When I was reading this this week, it reminded me of um, Mike and Christine Chan, who couple who relocated from Shanghai to Worcester at the end of 2021. In fact, their pastor in Shanghai recommended that they look into substance when they arrived back in the States, and since then they've become members of our church community. Not only that, but they're moving to Ashland in June so that they can be closer to the church as Mike begins his final uh, two years at Asbury Seminary. Um, This is a sacrifice for them for sure, but they see the value in it for their spiritual health, for their vitality, as well as being able to serve others with their time and their talent and their resources. They are willingly sacrificing and the Lord is going to bless that sacrifice. That doesn't mean everybody needs to move as close to downtown as possible. Don't hear me saying that. I think you guys know I'm not saying that. We need people that are scattered all through our regions, all through our streets, all through our counties. But because the Chans have that kind of mobility, because they have that kind of flexibility, they wanna be close to the church family. It's important for Mike's studies to be close to the church so that he has a connection with the leaders here so that we can help him as he's in his training so they can grow as a young married couple who desires community. And they're they're gonna be blessed because of that. God's going to bless that sacrifice. Like he blesses the sacrifice that you all make. Even those of you who have to drive a little far. He's he's blessing that sacrifice. That's recognized as a sacrifice that he's going to bless. Here's what we mean, by the way. I said this earlier during our call to worship. But here's what we mean by the word bless. Because it certainly doesn't mean that they're not going to face challenges. That's not what it means to be blessed. This is how Dane Ortland defines blessed. He says, It's moving through life, listen to this, with a settled depth of happiness, a settled depth of happiness that comes from walking with God and enjoying his fatherly favor. Man, that's good, huh? He says it like this, to be blessed means to live the human life the way it was meant to be lived. It is to enjoy a taste of Eden restored. Man. Some of you are like, Ronnie, you've gone too far with that. You're setting up the chance for massive disappointment if they think coming into the warehouse is going to be like Eden restored. I'm not. They're already at the church right there. They get it. They've been here long enough. They know what they're signing up for. But listen, one of the components of intentional community is making sacrifices that you all make because God's vision for his kingdom spreading to the corners of the community That vision has become your vision. And because it's become your vision, you make appropriate sacrifices because that vision has now entered the forefront of your heart. And those things that that God cares desperately about, now you care desperately about, right? When Jesus entered the universe, what did he enter into? He entered into a community. He entered into a community with men and women and children. And he did it to sacrifice his life for the sake of God's kingdom. Think about what Jesus entered into 
right? He didn't just enter, he didn't just come to earth and then do his ministry isolated alone on the top of a hill. That's not what he did. He entered into the mess of community. Paul tells us what this looks like in Ephesians 5. He says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And he says this, he says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and what? Sacrifice to God. Walking in love like Christ, it, it requires sacrifice like Christ. That's one of the components of creating intentional community is that we're going to step back. We're going to see our neighbors. We're going to see the fellow members of our church. And we're going to be invested enough to know what it looks like to step into their lives with them because that's how they experience Jesus Christ. Intentional community, it requires sacrifice. And you know, man, some of you have been so great at that at this church. It's just been astounding to see that. It's been humbling to see that. The way you guys rally around the hurting, rally around people that are in need. Um, it's a sight to behold. I'm really grateful for it. Here's the third point in what it takes for intentional community, and it's this. It's keeping God's heart in plain view. It's keeping God's heart in plain view. We will not neglect the house of God. Imagine saying that as you wake up in the morning and you're wiping the sleep out of your eyes and you're trying to get that coffee up to your lips without spilling it right? You're staring into the pantry at that box of cereal that you're so sick of, but you're trying, you know? Imagine the first thought that comes to your mind. I will not neglect the house of God. With all that God is doing, I will remember not to forget God in all that I'm doing. We will not neglect the house of God. This is the main component for creating a community that serves as a light to one another. And the city that the, that light fills. We keep God's heart in plain view. We don't lose his vision to love and to save people. We do what we can to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. And we keep his heart in plain view so that when it gets hard and it gets messy, we push through and we, we endure. Because being in a church community is hard and it gets messy. It's hard and it gets messy. So although we intentionally gather together, the danger is that we can just kind of play church in a way that lacks willingness to get dirt under our fingernails, right? We can hold ourselves very carefully. We can be extremely risk averse. We can stay as safe as possible to try and mitigate some of the mess that comes with getting close to people. The Israelites that moved to Jerusalem are going to experience a lot of mess. Relational, physical, emotional challenges, difficulties, they were going to be at the core of where their worship community gathered and there would be unique challenges for them in that. But here's 
the thing. It just wasn't really about them. It wasn't really about them. Do you ever hear people say that? Like, it's not really about you. You know, and at first you're kind of taken back going, well, it kind of is. I mean, you're the one asking me to do this crazy thing. It's kind of about me. It is in as much as that it's not really about you because as somebody who's been filled now with the light and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, your focus has been just shifted. It's been shifted to the place that it'll never be the same again. And in that sense, it's not about you. It's not about me. Melissa, do not shake your head when I say that. It's not about me. It's not really about us in that sense. Eugene Peterson, listen to what he says about this. It's a long quote. Christian life begins as something simple and clean. God and ourselves. But it doesn't stay that way. Clutter crowds us. Pollution messes us up. We lose our way and we get frantic. We get tired and we wonder if this is all there is to it. I mean, I just, that just described everybody. That probably describes the majority of us this morning. He goes on to say this. Then we come together as a community. We worship God and we greet each other. And as we do this, we get the story straight again about the God who makes us, the Christ who saves us, and the Spirit who works in us to repeat our Lord's words and deeds among our neighbors in the world. Man. And he goes on to say this. In spiritual community, we work to recover the true story and the true identity of each of us, in which we realize our dignity and beauty and we find out how to love. We must keep that basic and plain, as little of us as possible and as much of God as we can take in. I'd read that again, but we'll be here till two. It's not about us. And keeping God's heart in plain view, it allows us to detach from that tendency that we have as people and really as the church to make everything about us reshift our focus to what God is doing in our town, what God is doing in our church, and then getting to be a part of that in the most exciting and in the most humble of ways. And in that way, we're discovering what we were put on this earth for. And in that way, all those other things that we do, all those other pursuits, all those other goals, all those other aims and careers and dreams, they're not just cast away, but they become something wholly redemptive for us. Does that make sense? Maybe it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to me a lot of mornings. How do we remain obedient to this vision? How do we sacrifice for one another? I don't always know how to do that. How do we keep God's heart in plain view so that we take wise 
and godly risks in order to build a thriving community? How do we do it and in an intentional and in a unifying way so that we don't end up being a church that looks like Friday night Monopoly games at the Martin household? Because we laugh at that and it's so ridiculous. And if you could have been at these games, you would wonder how I'm still alive today. But it was ridiculous. But I think it has much more in common with us as a church than we would dare like to think. How do we remain obedient to God's vision? Well, we read this in our assurance passage, I believe. It's Ephesians 4, 1 through 4. Paul has some really helpful words that I'm going to close with right now. This is Paul talking to the Ephesians. And he says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. So he's writing this from prison. Right? He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit. How do we do this? How do we stay true to God's vision? How do we sacrifice? How do we keep God's heart in plain view? What we embody who we are. It sounds so simple to say it like that. Be who you are in Jesus. You are a humble person. That is the spirit you've been given. You are gentle. You are patient. You are forbearing. You are unified with your brothers and sisters. This is your true identity now. However it's being lived out, the truest part of you are these things that Paul has laid out for us. This is what identifies you as the embodied community of Christ. So you look around and you say, how can I intentionally live these marks of the Christian life out? How can I do that? Because here's the thing. We shouldn't look at humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance as simply our reaction when something happens in the church. So when that bad thing happens, what I got to try to do is remember to be humble. What I got to try to do is remember, I'm going to be patient. When that guy has said that thing or that woman has betrayed me for the seventh time, I'm going to be forbearant. That's good. That's good too. But these are active things. These are not just reactive things. We should proactively look for ways to be humble. Proactively look for ways to be gentle, patient, forbearing, and unified. Is there somebody I could be gentle with today because they are going through such a rough patch that it would just feel like a bomb in their life? Is there somebody who is frustrated that I know in my community group that I can sit down with and say, hey, I'd love to hear what's going on in your life. I, I don't have anything for you other than to listen and be patient with you. Do we have somebody that we can be humble with? Do we have somebody we can pull to the side and say, hey, I'm your brother. I'm your sister. Whatever you're going through, I, we're unified here. It's okay. Because that's called intentional community. That's called the kind of community that actually exists inside of you because Christ is living inside of you, which means it can be lived out of you.
So that's what we aim for. That's what we pray for. That's what we preach for every week. That's what we strive for. And we do it knowing that we have grace. We do it knowing that we have mercy. We don't walk out of here condemned. But we walk out of here with a sense of sobriety as well as a sense of mission and a sense of excitement. Because you can be what I just described to somebody next to you in this church and therefore not just create intentional community, but create a community that is going to look and smell and feel and taste like Jesus who died so that this could be a community. Amen? I'm going to pray. Lord, thank you for showing us in Nehemiah how you led these people to create the kind of community that we want to create filled with your vision and your heart and your sacrifice. Lord, strengthen us to do that now as we take communion and we're reminded of the one who was sent to die and to live and to create the community that we enjoy. So God, do that for us now as we're being led through that. In Jesus' name, amen.